Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Spear Factor. Uh, This episode is with Captain Dan Walsh. And if you don't know him, uh, look him up. He's really, really uh, experienced guy. Been operating dive boats since the 1970s. Dove with the original bottom scratchers. Uh, Jack Provanovich dove with Terry Moss when he shot that 400-pound bluefin off Guadalupe Island. Uh, it's a real pleasure to talk to him. He's very humble, and he shares a lot of cool stuff with us. And as always, we got to give a big shout-out to our sponsors, Spear uh, Spearfishing. Uh, the best thing about Camara spearfishing is, wow, the uh, tip actually works and it uh, replaces the high expensive uh, slip tips. It allows you to hunt around rocks without any issues. Uh, I personally use it and I wouldn't recommend it if I didn't personally use it and believe in it. So check out the side slips at CamaraSpearfishing.com. And uh, the good news is if you get there and you decide you want to purchase, which you should, first of all, uh, but if you put in the Spear Factor promo code, that's promo code is Spear Factor, you'll get an additional 5% off. And um, that 5%, to be honest, comes back to me, which helps me do this whole thing and makes my wife happy. So I appreciate that very much. Uh, if you decide to purchase. Also, our other sponsors, uh, a new sponsor as well this week is Hot Rod Spear Guns. Uh, check it out, Paul Rodriguez. Uh, his Instagram, Hot Rod Spear Guns. Uh, I got a chance to meet Paul and go dive with him, and I've used his products to hunt dogs down in uh, Micronesia. And again, I believe in it. It's a, a good gun, really good gun, uh, at a really good price. So check it out. And as always, we're affiliated with the One Drop Spear Fishing, the boys down in Guam, doing it right. Uh, spear fishing to feed the families and friends. And just love being in the ocean. All right, now that we got that done, let's get started with this episode.
All right, so welcome back to Spear Factor, everybody. Today we have uh, Captain Dan Walsh. Um, he has been running boats for since the 70s, um, and I cannot imagine what you've seen just in your frequency of going offshore and seeing how the oceans changed over the years for the good and the bad uh, or the worse, whatever. So welcome to the show, Captain. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here, and uh, hopefully we can have some good fun and tell some sea stories. Oh, yeah. Always, always. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so let's look. I mean, with all the guests, right, everybody spearfishes. So, you know, rather than just keep on going back through, how did you get started spearfishing? I, I really uh, will briefly get into that, but I really want to get into, I guess, some sea stories like you're talking about and your experiences running boats and the different people in the different places and, and situations where you had to kind of maybe think outside the box a little bit um, or you were surprised uh, you kind of underestimated something or, or, or whatever you learned something let's say that uh, in, in all your travels and the unique experiences well someone remind me to tell we'll talk a little bit later but uh, uh, I've got you know pretty much I've run boats in in California Baja Hawaii, a little bit in the Caribbean, not much, but uh, remind me a little while to talk about going out to Cortez Banks with a group from Arizona. That's that's a pretty good one. But uh, things have changed a little bit since, you know, I I first got certified as a diver in 71. I never took courses, you know, until then. And I've been diving before then in high school. I went to a dive shop and rented a tank and it had the rules, do this, don't do that. The one I remembered was don't hold your breath. I didn't know why until I took a scuba class. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, my, my experience is just, it's, uh, I've had a lot of places to go, a lot of things to do, working both on a boat as a scuba instructor in the diving industry, as a manufacturer, as an underwater videographer for TV shows. So it's, uh, it's, it's just in, enveloped my, my whole life, actually. And, uh, I've been very fortunate, very fortunate. No, and uh, I could I can clearly relate to that. I just feel like any of us that are into diving and, and surfing even or any of the water stuff and then we're able to tie in our work with what we love to do, it's just phenomenal. And what I also find is like your experience level goes through the roof because you're on the water every single day for the most part. And um Yeah, yeah. I mean I I had uh, just as an aside uh, or an example of that I should say. I have over 1,500 logs days just at San Clemente Island. Uh, so, you know, I kind of know the place pretty well. Um, and, uh, and Kona Coast. But yeah, that's, that's not only is it my favorite place to dive, but I've also, I know the place really well. And, uh, I know all the spots and the pinnacles and all that by dead reckoning or something before there was GPS, before there was all uh, a fancy sides, anything. There was, we had a flashing favometer that it was a little thing. It went in a circle and it had, you had one was at the top and if it was 60 feet, the thing would be flashing down here. And that's how, and we'd look on the shore, we'd look around and say, okay, like there's a place called Window Pinnacle near on the lee side of San Clemente called, uh, uh, by a place called Little Flower. But if you look up, up on the top there, there's a thing that looks like a window and there's a little, little rock in the middle. So if you, Sort of line up on that, and then you look down to Pyramid Head down that way, and there's the, the light and a tripod down there. And if you kind of take those two lines 
and you looked at your flasher and you're about 35, 30 feet, you found a pinnacle. And that's how I did my whole career. I mean, now I've got a small skiff with Stimrad, everything, and the thing does everything. And uh, I'm quite, uh, actually, I'm quite intimidated by it because it's got so much stuff that I'm trying, still trying to figure out how to use. But, uh, anyway, it's just what you're used to. You no, know? it's, it, you're, you know, you're totally right. Like uh, in, in GPS, you know, the pluggers and the daggers and all that stuff have not been around really that long. Like I remember when I first started working on the water, um, it was the same way. It was like we just terrain, line up the terrain. And it's funny because depending on what the water depth is, I mean, you'll be right on target every time. Yeah. Like, and we would do the same thing. Obviously, we do it quite often when we surf. We just line up in the right spot. And it's the same thing um, where this one wreck we used to dive and get lobster. It's like uh, we didn't have any of that stuff. We just lined it up. And people were always surprised. They're like, I can't believe you just did that. I'm like, well, it yeah. just makes sense, you know. Yeah, our, our most sophisticated thing we had uh, on one of the boats on the bottom scratcher that I ran was an old, old radar that uh, you could barely see it as a thing. The screen was so worn out. And when we would go, I'd take the boat down to Benitez or Sacramento Reef or wherever. That was our, you know, we, we used our, we used our watch and we used the speed and we used charts and we used dividers and spread, we used all this stuff and, and the radar would just sort of verify where we were, just kind of barely see an outline of the coastline, you know, if the radar would show it to us. And, uh, that's how we did it. You know, same thing with all the dive sites all along Baja. You know, it was just, you know, now I, I can't imagine, you know, I mean, I've been on boats and I've taken a couple of boats, uh, private yachts down there and, uh, we went to San Benitez Island. We have all this electronics. I'm looking at it all and, and, uh, just amazed, amazed. So. You, you kind of touched upon something too. Uh, you know, you talk about all these electronics and, um, they're really good until they stop working. And, um, that's the one thing, uh, I wanted to impress with you. Knowing how far you've been, how long ago you've been doing this is that I tell a lot of the newer guys, like, you need to pay attention to your compass because when the fog rolls in and all of a sudden you don't have radar on your boat, if you don't have radar on your boat or whatever, you need to know to take a back azimuth or you need to know, you need to pay attention to see which way the swell's going. Like all these cues that, um, I've had to learn through failure when I was out at Total Santos Island on a jet ski and then the fog came in so thick we couldn't see. But I try to remember, like, okay, when we came out, we left the corral, we had this, you know, yep. and then the swell was coming this way, and okay, and we got pretty close. We almost got, you know, crushed on the beach by the <laughs> way. But 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 those things that I, I feel like, especially with newer boaters and, and guys that are um, thinking about getting a boat uh, today, when I was surfing, somebody asked me, like, hey, so what kind of boat should I get? And it's like one that you don't think you need, like, start small and then grow bigger. Don't you know, get a boat that if you've never owned a boat before, you're going to grossly underestimate the cost and the time associated with it. But um, with you, you're unique because, I mean, you're running much bigger vessels with the responsibility of a bunch of divers. And I know from running dive crews, you never know what you're going to get with people. <laughs> well, yeah, let me, let me tell you something. What, what I would, what I used to do, um, even when I was an instructor, but, but then when I was running boats, especially like the bottom scratcher or the spirit of adventure, one of, one of the other boats, I would, uh, at the first dive site, I would have the crew all sort of just on alert. Let's just watch how they, 
the passengers are, are putting their gear together. That is a telltale sign. And it's the ones that would put the, the backpacks on the tank upside down. Okay, those got special attention. Um, and, uh, and I would also, we had our rescue board, same thing, San Diego lifeguard views. We'd have those ready to go if we needed it. And, and I would sit and watch and then I'd watch the dives and I would watch somebody come up, especially if we we're in a kelpie area. And, uh, you could, you could just tell after a while, you just know what looks normal and what doesn't look normal. And it's hard to put into words. You just, you, you see it and, and you, uh, uh act accordingly. And then, it, it, with the group, uh, the story I was going to say about going after Cortez Banks, I had a group on board at San Clemente Island from Arizona. Pretty good group of divers, but not real good group of divers. So I, it, it, I have to assess, okay, are these guys, and they were hell-bent on going after Cortez Banks, <laughs> which is 100 miles off the San Diego coastline. It's 40 miles from San Clemente Island, um, and it's a four-hour boat ride out there. There's nothing, there's no land out there. So we would do live boat dive. In the, in the earlier days, we would do a live boat dive. A live boat dive means you get a group of people together, maybe five or six divers or four divers. You say, hey, this is a dive, dive site for you. They jump in and the boat just kind of just makes a big giant circle and you just drop people off. Kind of like the, when the Navy SEALs are training, they do the same thing. So we just make a big giant circle. We come back around and when they come up, we say, just get together. And I spin the boat around, say, okay, come on in, up we go. Well, this group wasn't quite ready for that. So, well, I'm, God, I, I, yeah, I guess I'll tell it. So what I, what happened was that these people were really ready to go to Cortez Banks. And so two o'clock in the morning, I get the boat started. We're anchored in Pyramid Cove and I get off China Point and I said, you know, these guys aren't going to do it. So I put the boat in circles. I just put the boat and started driving the boat in big circles, and I started driving through my own wake, and I made it real bumpy, and then I'd go in the trough and make it really uncomfortable. <laughs> then pretty soon, uh, the, the dive master came up, and he says, it's kind of rough out, isn't it? I says, yeah, I says, well, maybe we should stay at St. Clemente Island. Went, you got Third it. Call. <laughs> yeah. So that's what we did. The flip side is, as, as, as scuba diving, as an instructor changed a lot as I, from the time I started in 72 to now. And the, the levels and sophistication of divers became more and more dependent on equipments and skills. So then when we would take the boats out to Cortez, we would anchor the boat. And if, you know, and if the weather wasn't, if the weather wouldn't allow us to anchor, we wouldn't go. Because then we'd, we'd put out a big, uh, current line and have a little zodiac something because the skill level was such that live boat diving wasn't in the picture for them and uh and it's just how it is sorry but you know what uh i'm ultimately responsible to not only their families but to the coast guard the insurance company the boat owner god knows who if anyone else and i'm not going to put uh them or me or my license or anything else in danger so sometimes you got to do little little tricks like that and i didn't do that very often but this group really I was really nervous for them, and they were very, very. We got to go. We got to go. You know, and yeah, yeah, that's a lot of that's being naive too. Um, yeah. and yeah. they just don't know. Everybody wants to dive Cortez Banks, and they don't know that it's super windy out there often, or that um, you know, out there because it's the middle of the ocean, the currents and everything. You're so much more susceptible. Well, you're you're susceptible to a lot of things, but also um, in the 
those open ocean dives like that, it's real easy to lose, especially if there's some swell. And then uh, when the fog comes in sometimes out there, it's, uh, it's, that's nervous captain time right there, you know. And you just, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Now, a, a fun thing that actually happened, one of our deckhands, John Miking, actually one day, uh, he, he's a real good surfer, you know, and uh, he now runs a tuna boat out of Kuala Basin in Honolulu. But uh, he got on one of our rescue boards, and we towed him all the way from Cortez Bank into the dock. And he literally, when we got to the dock at Point Loma, and we sent food, we sent a beer, we sent things down the line to him. And and when he got in, he literally, we, I stopped the boat, he paddled, and he literally jumped on the, on the dock, and we threw the line to him. It was pretty fun. And as, as another aside, his girlfriend was our cook. And who do you think the cook was? I just, I, I just happen to have something here. I'll give you, see if you can, you want to take a guess? Someone pretty popular. Went to Mesa College, was taking drama. You ready? Yeah, go for it. Can you see that? Annette Benning? Yep. Annette wow. Benning. Yeah. She was a, a great diver, and, and, and she hated cooking the, always, we always cooked the same thing on the boat, the hamburgers or whatever. Yeah. But she was, uh, yeah, she was, she was our, uh, she was a cook. That is so random. Yeah. Wow. She finally came clean on that on one of the late night shows with Paul Bear or somebody finally, she mentioned the fact that when she was in the, going to college, she worked on a dive boat and she was a cook. That's a pretty, yeah. So for a lot of the people that don't know, this is something interesting. I think that, uh, people that don't know the history, I guess, of San Diego or Southern California, um, can you kind of get into the whole bottom scratcher boat and what that means? Sure. The San Diego was, it was kind of the hub of, of free diving and spear fishing, although someone in Italy may think something different. But in the United States, it was San Diego and there was guys, uh, way back when Jack Gradonovich lived in, uh, Point Loma area. He, he was, I think he was a custodian at Point Loma High School. I think it was there. Anyway. Oh, hey, he, yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so he, uh, he and the guy named Wally Potts and a few other guys, uh, back in the 30s started a dive club and you had to have, uh, it was an exclusive dive club, no scuba. They pretty much made all their own stuff. Uh, and I, I want to get through, you say that I do this right. So I'm going to read it. In order to get in the club, you had to bring up three abalones from a depth of 30 feet, um, catch a shark of any kind with your bare hands and haul up a live lobster from a slippery underwater ledge that was, uh, let's see. Live lobster about three feet long. They said three feet long, but I don't know. I, the, I, the biggest lobster I ever got was not three feet long, but it was big. Yeah. Anyway, that's so anyway, that was the history of the club. And there, and ultimately they had about, uh, 20 ish members. The last member was a guy named Marty Passos, who, uh, was inducted in the early nineties. I believe it was. And he was the, the historian. The club, obviously they're all passed away. I believe there might be one guy left, but he doesn't dive. Uh, obviously he's, he's in his nineties, but, uh, they're, they really were the innovators. They didn't have wetsuits. They wore wool jackets or wool, why not jacket sweaters. Um, they ultimately, uh, had fins. Someone else invented a fin and they started using it. Um, and then it became time for game collecting and they did a lot like, like, well, even me, my first thing that I made, I made a, I went to a thrifty drugstore and I bought a trident and I put it on a pole spear or on a broom handle 
and it's somewhere I've got some surgical tubing, and that was my first, you know, spear gun, if you will. If you will. These guys were a lot more sophisticated than that, and ultimately Jack uh, was able to make mechanisms and started making guns. Wally would make reels. So the bottom scratchers are kind of like this revered club, first supposedly first dive club in the United States. I don't know, you know, I can't verify that, but I think that's probably correct. Um, Bill Johnston was one of the members, and he had a boat called the Vid that most people never heard of. It was was Vid was a very important diver, and okay. and he would if the weather it's kind of like you know you have surf check and it, before all the social stuff you'd get a call or somebody would say waves are good at garbage or somewhere else you know and you'd go there, um, but uh, Bill would say okay Cortez it's on. And, and he'd get the guys on the vid, and they'd go out and, and do their lobster diving and everything else. He then uh, uh, was partners with Bill Hardy at San Diego Diver Supply, which was one of the premier dive stores in San Diego back then. Uh, I had the fortune to work at the one on Midway uh, for a while, and then over at La Jolla. They had two locations, long, long since gone. But uh, Bill and Bill Hardy ran that uh, the, the stores then. Bill Johnson wanted to go more into boats. He was a Navy guy, World War II, but Pearl Harbor and stuff like that. Uh, Bill Hardy wound up with stores. Bill Johnson built the bottom scratcher in 1969 here in San Diego. Um, a guy named Don Blackman built it. And it's, uh, if any of your viewers, listeners know of Blackman Boats, this is the same company that built the bottom scratcher. And then a few years later, the Sand Dollar and Sister Ship. Um, they were very similar boats, very popular. The, the bottom scratcher guys would come out now and then. Um, I've got some pictures that, uh, I don't know if, if I can, if you want any pictures, but I've got some, a few pictures of Jack Ferdonovich and some of these other guys, um, uh, going out on the boats and they, they just, the, the stuff they wore was just unbelievable. The equipment they had, uh, the spear guns and things were just, it's just not like anything that you see today. It was very, uh, rough, rustic. But it well, worked. I saw, it yeah, worked. I, saw, I saw some of those pictures you sent me with the dive belt, aka the lead shock. Yeah, like wrapped. Uh, yeah, that was classic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and so anyway, this so other other uh, dive clubs, you know, sprung up in Southern California. Uh, there's the, the Neptunes in Long Beach and those guys. And anyway, there's a bunch of them. But the bottom scratchers were pretty much the ones they had. Jackets, satin jackets, and they had all that whole sort of stuff, and and hats, and they got together, and uh, I was honored enough to to know of some of them, worked for one of them, and uh, and really enjoyed their company. They were all wonderful watermen, and and uh, I dove with Jack and Bill a few times, and hell, I was half or a third their age, and they would just leave me in the dust. It just their their skill level was just you know. And it's interesting enough, I'm six foot tall. These guys were both, you know, well, Bill reminded me of Popeye. He had big giant arms, you know, a little guy, you know, and, and Jack was about the same. Wally was more like me, you know, a big, kind of big guy. Uh, but it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun to be with them. And, and they are still highly respected. If you just say bottom scratchers and, you know, a group of Spiros, I mean, they, they know who they are. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's a, kind of touched upon a pretty important thing too as far as uh being one dimensional just in general like with you're either a diver or you strictly surf 
but like being a waterman is something entirely different. And I think that's something that everybody should try to strive for. Uh, not for anything other than, um, you know, if you, if you love the ocean and really want to be comfortable and safe in it, you've got to understand everything in its a, a totality, like in, entirely, uh, entirely understand how everything like functions and moves. And I feel like those guys, you know, they didn't have the best equipment. They didn't have this. They didn't need it because they understood how everything worked and yep. they didn't rely like you were talking about with how diving, uh, scuba diving. People rely so much on their equipment and their, um, you know, this and that and all their little gadgets and yeah. uh, heads up display and all this crap. And to me, I look at it as just more shit to go wrong and cause me problems. I like simple is better, which yep. again, when I was younger, kind of gradually led me into uh, spearfishing. But, um, I think that's just a big thing you press upon is like being a good waterman, like driving a boat, operating a boat. Um, those things are, are, really separate um you being a good diver from a phenomenal diver yeah you know and it those things will uh very much so make it a higher likelihood that you're going to be coming home to your family at the end of the day if something were to go wrong right because everybody's great when it's like um well for example and then i'll stop talking i'll let you turn to talking but we get people at work that i'd be like Hey, what's your scuba diving experience? You know, oh, I got certified and I go in Fiji and Hawaii. And you're like, that's great. We're diving in, you know, six inches of murk sometimes <laughs> in San Diego yep. Bay. Yep. Um, and they freak out. They can't handle it. So, you know, understanding all those things just gives you peace of mind. If you happen to get in those situations, you know how to get out. Well, and the basic, the basics of, of, of diving became. And I worked for a manufacturer. We manufactured all, now we had 900 items we manufactured, a company called Aquacraft, including Bandito spear guns. And, but, uh, what I've seen, and I've, I've worked for other companies, wetsuit companies and doing video production and things like that. They pretty much run out of things, you know, and it became, uh, Tabata became really big. Okay. We're going to make fins that are yellow and pink and blue and, and the mask. We're now we're going to make clear silicone ones now. And, uh, I mean, a regulator is a regulator, you know, a mask is a mask. So now it's interesting in that the past probably three years, maybe, um, free diving has become this all of a sudden, oh, it's the new thing. And so all the agencies, I know I did, I did a course, uh, an FII course with a guy named Mark Lozano here in Sandy in Oceanside. Right. I'm Mark. Yeah. And, and of course there's PFI and I did a, I did a, a, Frenzel course with Ted Hardy for PFI, um, uh, and and frankly, being a scuba instructor and and coming in with all the habits of a scuba instructor and scuba diver, I was probably the worst student in Mark Lozano's class because I brought all this dive baggage with me, and it's it just but that's now the it looks like that's the next revenue generating area for the dive industry. Is this another one of those? There we go. I thought I put that on quiet. Yeah. So anyway. That's the big thing now is free diving and, uh, and we'll see where it all goes. Um, uh, there's not much more you can do, as I said, with a regulator. Uh, <laughs> cameras are now all pretty much GoPros, you know, where you take your iPhone and you put it in a case and you do your thing. Um, the, my underwater video production work, we had cameras that I can't even, my arms can't show you how big it was, but beta cams. And when I did stuff in Australia for Shark Week and things, but now, 
the, the forty thousand dollars camera in a housing is is about the picture quality isn't as good as this iPhone. You know, right? So so that aspect of the diving and and guys put the GoPros on the spear guns and stuff like that's kind of fun to watch, but. You know, uh, a little bit of that goes a long way if they're if their head's always going like this, or they've got a head monitor or something like that. It's, you just you can't watch it. So uh, spear gun equipment. Um, I've got stuff. You know, and if you'd like, I can I can send a lot of pictures of all that. But I've got old Pradonovich guns. Uh, that's I sort of sort of collect those. Um, the the mechanism on a Pradonovich gun was very essentially almost interchangeable with a Voigt Swimmaster spear gun. Which is now known as the JBL spear gun. Right. Yeah. I remember and, that. I remember yeah. the Voigt. Yeah, yeah. The whole thing. I was a kid, but I remember all of that stuff. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. That's what happened to Voigt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and in fact, um, I still have my old Voigt sawed off Magnum and I, I've told others I spoke at a North County Depth Finders, I, I think in December. I can't remember. And I brought a bunch of spear guns to show a little show and tell. And I told them, I said, look, this is not my favorite gun. I held it up. And, but this gun, I've caught more, I've shot more fish with this gun than any of these other ones. These fancy rife gun I have or these Kradonoviches or anything else. So, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of like having an old Chevy. You just like to have it, you know, and every trip I go on, it goes with me. And I, you know, I, it always goes in the water at least once. But now, my God, you know, I know there's, I, I don't have any custom guns. I don't, you know, I'm, I think I'm a little, I just turned 69 a week ago. I think I've got plenty of guns. I don't know that I need to go out and be getting crazy with guns and everything. I'm also, as I've, I've mentioned one time, I think in my notes to you that, uh, I'm kind of a blue collar spear fisherman. And I, I don't, uh, I mean, I was with Terry Mosk and he shot his big tuna. I was running the boat. I was in the water. Um, and that's all well and good, but, um, you know, I just like to shoot something, bring it home, feed it to the family, give it to the neighbors, do whatever, you know, I just, I just, you know, I like to have fun and, and enjoy myself. I'm not, I'm not out to prove anything, I guess, is my point. That's the whole point, right? It's just, yeah. that's why we do it. Like before social media, if, if, if your main focus nowadays is to hold up the biggest fish or, or whatever it is, yeah. um, why do it? Like because yeah. I guess twenty years ago there was none of that. So would you have even spearfished or you would even dove like back then? I don't know. Yeah. Um but yeah, um no, that's amazing with the, the Terry Moss, you know, thing you brought up, like with this big tuna. That's just a classic picture from what Terry did, that book, um, Blue Water Hunter and and um uh that was at uh, Guadalupe Island, right? It was. It was on the sand dollar and when when Terry got it, uh, you know, I was pretty much it was a private charter guy, Howard Benedict and some of his other good, good spiro buddies were on board and they were targeting big tuna. Now, back then, there wasn't the big great white shark issue that they're, that they're there all over the place there now. Uh, they, uh, they were there, but not in the numbers that they are at this point. So we would get in the water. It's funny. It's the only place really that I've dived uh, other than dangerous reef in Australia, the only place that I was kind of, you know, I'd kind of look around a little bit, you know, because I knew, all right, this is, I may see one here, but, but at the point, all of a sudden I'm in the water and I'm just looking around and, and I hear all this commotion, probably, I don't know, 40, 50 yards away from me. And there's a gun, literally a gun and people are yelling and hollering and what the hell's going on? You know, so, you know, but the, you know, one of two boat captains, Bill was on the boat. And so I'm in the water. So I have to go swim over and I just, 
look at this. Holy crap, look at that fish. <laughs> so I swam back to the boat as fast as I could, and uh, he had all the help he needed. Uh, and I would, I would probably have been more in the way than anything else. And I grabbed my Nikonis camera, and I jumped back in the water, and I took a whole bunch of pictures of the fish. And I gave a bunch of the pictures to Terry, so there's probably a pretty good chance that if you've seen a picture of, of the fish in the water, chances are pretty good maybe I took that picture. Um, and the fun part about the whole deal was really how excited everybody was. It was like kids at Disneyland, and everybody was so supportive to help. Then the problem became, what are we going to do with this thing? <laughs> so, I mean, the sand dollar, the the fish holds are not like a modern a modern boat now that you can put a fish like that in an RSW tank or a refrigerated seawater tank or or you know, ice hole or something. So we had to improvise. We had a Zodiac that we were using as a support boat. So we put that up on the bow, and then we filled, put ice in the bottom, and then it took about eight of us to haul the fish in, not over the exact point of the bow, but just to the side. And that was the only way we could get it in the boat. And uh, and we're yanking on it, got it up over there and into the Zodiac and put more uh, more ice on it and uh, and covered it up with a tarp. And it was about, from the day he shot it to the time we got it into San Diego was about five days. And it's about a two-day drive just to go to Guadalupe Island from San Diego. Um, the fish... I, I, I can't say that I can't verify this, but common sense would tell you that this fish was well over 400 pounds. But when it was weighed five days after he got it, it had got dehydrated a bit and things like that. It was 398, I think, and, and some change, maybe 398.2 or whatever. I, I don't know the exact exact weight anymore. But anyway, it was it, it really exciting. It, it was great to be part of it. Uh, Terry is... you. Most, you know, any of your, your Spiro fans know that he's a, he's, you know, like the name as far as Spiro fishermen go. He does have the book that you mentioned and others have a copy in my other room. I don't know who doesn't have a copy of that book. And, uh, you know, and he's going on to that, that was his thing. And that was all these guys' thing was to go out for a big trophy fish. You know, so for me, it was unique to see that aspect of, you know, it's like big game hunting, you know, that right. people go on safaris. And this was, this was a safari on a boat, you know, down at a very, very unique place. So it, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. And what gear were they using? Like, I think he had, was it lifeguard floats filled with foam or what was he doing? What, what gear, do you remember what gear he was using? Yeah, they were, it was pretty, pretty basic stuff. He did have, uh, some lifeguard thing, lifeguard floats that were filled with foam. Um, I, and, and I recall some that were kind of like a dark orange, they almost looked like they took, uh, net floats and made something like, like combined a bunch of net floats and, and made things with that. Uh, yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't like it is now where you got inflatables or you got the, the companies here in town that make them in San Diego that make them. And, uh, yeah, it's quite a bit different. So it was, it, I mean, it's to, to do the same thing now. I don't want to take anything away from any of these heroes that are going out here offshore to San Clemente Island or off and, and shooting a big fish, but I can assure you they're having it's a lot easier for them than it was for Terry back then. Right, that's like common. I feel like that's kind of common sense because you know you do anything the first time, and, and people to start with people don't even think it's possible. 
Yeah. So, and I remember the first time, like, you know, shooting a 200 pound tuna was the most humbling experience in my life. Like to see it just <laughs> take down <laughs> floats and you, and I would have never guessed that looking back. Like I remember going after tuna with like probably 30 pounds of float thinking oh, I'll be good. You know, <laughs> and you're just stupid. But with Terry and those guys in the eighties, and I'm sure that the guys that I know of, and that doesn't mean a lot because I'm sure there's guys doing it all over the world, same thing, um, back in that time period where they're just going out They're They're probably did a lot of calculations. I'm assuming too, and experience and, um, you know, to be the, some of the first ones to go after those fish, like there's some steep learning curves there, you know? Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss Life on the Water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. <laughs> the destination for outdoor entertainment. Yeah. They kind of they they went through the learning curves for us. Yeah, you know? I don't think that. Well, I know that nobody thought that this was going to be a fish of that size was going to be brought on board. Uh, right. Had had we even thought that would have been the case, we would have figured out before we ever left the dock a way to handle a fish that size. So we figured well, we'll be good. You know, these guys are going to get they'll shoot a one eighty to two fifty or something like that, and we've we can manage that. We can get it in the fish holes. We can open up the deck hatches and get it, you know, take care of these things. Not this baby. This was a whopper, you know, of all times. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's the biggest fish I've ever seen in the water as far as tuna goes. You know, I've seen some big grouper, but, but this was, whew, you know, it, it, it's still today. I mean, I can, I, you know, it just impresses the hell out of me that, that he actually, he saw the, the thank God he got a good shot on it. And then uh, I don't know who got a second shot. I really don't know. That might be in the, one of the chapters in his book. I guess I have to go back and read it. You know. Yeah. But anyway, it was a good. It was the, the morale and, and the excitement on. You know, it made the guys that were getting like the 180 pounders, and then they're out there getting their personal best, and then this happened. <laughs> so it was kind of like an ego pressure for them. But, oh, yeah. but overall, everybody, we were so stoked for him. We couldn't believe. That this happened and that for me to be a part of it was just as exciting for me as if I would have shot the fish. Yeah, I had a moment like that where I shot like a 70 pound dog tooth and I was all proud. It was like my personal best. And I think it was literally the same day, the same weekend in another part of the world. Brandon Waller shot like a 200 pound dog tooth and posted it and it just looked ridiculous. And I was like, ah, oh, damn it. Okay. You know, like back of the drawing board. Yeah. Um, but it still made it special for me. It was awesome. Uh, but so how many times do you say you've been to Guadalupe Island uh, with diving and and um, and uh, spearfishing? And have you noticed any patterns like, you know, how we go so much and things start to notice patterns like with the sharks? Are they seasonal? Before we had all this tracking stuff, I, I think I remember reading somewhere where someone like there was that, OK, this month is iffy. If you get there before this month, you're good. Is that did you notice that as well? Yeah, I did, and 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 just so for the record, there was a a, a boat, a, a guy in town, a dentist had a small charter dive boat, and he took people down to Guadalupe, uh, but like in the seventies, 
uh, possibly late 60s, early 70s. And there was a shark attack back then. So the sharks were there, sharks yeah. were there, but not in the numbers now. And I think between Shark Week and the shark expeditions and, and, uh, um, was that yeah, Al? Was that shark attack you're talking about? Was that Al? I believe Al's it was. Dad? Yeah, yeah. I believe it was. Yeah, and I, I don't remember what year. Was that the 60s? It was late 60s. I think it, I think it was because yeah. I, I remember, um, Al Jr. saying he was about six. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah. And, you know, so there's, the, if, if there was yellowtail and then that it seems now there's been, you know, the, the or bluefin, now the, the bluefin seems to have been replaced by yellow, yellowfin. And they, so now the, the sports boats are going out there getting some big yellowfin. So it's, it's sort of moved around, it's changed a little bit. It, but, uh, I think I've been there, what, three times, I think two for dives. And it was just a kind of a ball buster to get out there. Uh, and it's not, it's not a, that's not a, you know, a, a beginner diver place, period. You know, I mean, it's just, it's just, you just, you really have to have some experience to even think about paying money to go on a trip like that. I've been on one fishing trip too, and it was just, it was just real sharky. You know, yeah. it was a summer trip. It was just real sharky. So yeah. would you notice like in the summertime, it's more sharkier there than, I don't know. You said you've been there three times. Have you been yeah. there like in the winter time too, no. or no, no, just summertime? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. Fair weather, fair weather, fair weather boat operator. How's that? Gonna... <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, as the older I get, I, 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 I welcome that title because there's nothing worse than beating the crap out of yourself. That's not fun. I've done uh, that. I've done plenty of that in Hawaii and uh, and even here. I mean, it's the first day that that Bill Johnson. Essentially, handed me the keys to the bottom scratcher. I had a group from Mesa College, uh, and they were doing a checkout dive. Uh, so I and I knew the island, so I took them into Pyramid Cove, and then they wanted it started getting crappy there. So we went over to uh, the lee side, and during the, while we were over there, the wind shifted. Now the wind's blowing directly on shore to the lee side, and I literally was live boat diving people between the shore. And, and the dive, I literally had the boat in less than 10 feet of water. And it's always funny because the, 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 my fellow skippers with the, on the fishing fleet, they'd see us at the Coronado or San Clemente or somewhere. And, you know, and we're looking down and we, you know, when we, when we're seeing eelgrass and Garibaldi's, we're no, yeah, we're about the right spot. You know, you tell that to one of those guys and they freak out. The last thing they want to see is eelgrass or a Garibaldi, you know. So it's just, it, it's a difference in my skill set. You know, I wouldn't, I, I've run boats where we've gone fishing, but I am not a fishing boat skipper. And I'll be the first to tell you that I love to fish. I know how to fish, but, um, but I'll, I'll stick to being a dive boat guy, you know, and, and and the skill set that it takes for that. I completely understand that. I, yeah, Yeah. those guys, um, you know, I live in Point Loma and all the, the, the tunas, as we affectionately call them, all the Portuguese guys, their dads, um, those guys are on another level as far as fishing goes. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just a diver. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, but they just, they can teach. You can learn a lot from those guys as far as reading the waters and, and trying to find out where the fish are. And, and that's, yeah, it keeps you humble. Um, so you said San Clemente Island is your favorite, uh, place to dive. Just like me. I love that place. Um, oh, good. That's good to hear. Yeah, that's, uh, I, so here's a little story. I took my friend from Guam. He was here visiting and he'd never been off the island, uh, diving. He's been all around Micronesia. And that's kind of why I talked to you a little bit that one day about that. Um, you know, 
everywhere in Micronesia dieting. Uh, and he ended up coming here. And his first time here, he hit me up. And I said, well, yeah, I'll take you out. We're going to go. The weather's going to go to San Fernando Island. And the first time we put him in the water there, you know, it's 80 feet of visibility. Yeah. And the kelp forest. And the water was freezing for us. It was 58. freezing for fish. <laughs> and we didn't see much. But. It was beautiful, you know, and, and that's the thing I love about that place is like, even if you don't see any fish, you spent the whole day just swimming around this beautiful kelp forest. And he kept popping up intermittently, just thanking me for uh, bringing him because he had never seen anything like it. He was just, I look over and I'm seeing him just diving through the kelp, just like checking it all out. This is incredible. It's a whole, I'm like, you know, this is as good as it's going to get. So wait till we, you know, next week and we dive back at home in Point Loma and it's three feet of his. And he's like, yeah, I'll stay on the boat, you know, uh, looking for sea bass, whatever. But yeah, that, that's that island. Um, I've been out there for work and, uh, I've dove it, you know, a, a few times, a handful of times out in, uh, since I've got my boat, I dove it out, uh, Pyramid Cove quite a bit. And then the northern part of the island. Um, and the northern part of the island just feels sharky to me. Oh boy, I feel sharky. But, uh, the, you know, it's just beautiful out there. So what are some of your best memories of diving sand from the island? I'll, I'll tell you the absolute best one of all time. Um, we had the boat anchored on the lee side of the island in a place called Little Flower. And it's just a gorgeous, it's just beautiful. It's like everything you want in a California dive is right there. There's kelp, there's, there's abalone, there's lobster, there's fish, there's a drop-off. And it was a August night, August uh, summer night. There was a full moon, and I I jumped in the water, and I sat down in like on scuba, uh, in about 20 feet, 25 feet of water, and I just sat there, and my eyes acclimated, and and the moonlight was lighting stuff up, and there's fish going by, and the the, the the light from the moon, and it was just the most spectacular thing I've ever done over at San Clemente Island. And I says I'll always remember it because I can't even put into words how what I was seeing. You know, and I just sat there for the longest period of time. And I'm sure that if it would have been today and to do that, I'd probably have try to have a rebreather so I wouldn't make bubbles so I could really see what was going on. It was just gorgeous. Just gorgeous. There's a lot of places like that. And you mentioned the north north end of the island. Did you dive out at uh, the nine fathom spot? Uh for the where the purple hydrocoral gardens are out there. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. And then in West Cove. Yep. Um, yeah. And runway area too. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. We did, the the uh, we used to do when I would have an advanced classes we would do uh rec, we would call it a wreck dive on the Butler that's uh, there in Northwest Harbor and uh uh there's uh, there's just so much to do there you know it's 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 the probably the best of California diving that there is now yeah, yeah that's what i told my friend too i said it, it's all downhill from here unless you yeah. go to baja <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah you know and cortez banks i mean it's beautiful there's big fish out there and it's 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 typically if, if you've got a good day it's, and you're not getting just beat up with surge or something you've got wonderful visibility that's how california is too but uh the days you know you can there aren't that many days out there that you can do that you know so uh that's where the places that I've taken the boats down off Baja, where there's places that are now still like it was here in California 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. So you, you mentioned Baja, and I remember hearing uh, on the Noob Spiro podcast too with you talking about that was your favorite place to, to travel. You think is in, in all the world is Baja. 
Oh, I love it. I mean, I've been yeah. several places, and and I, you know, I I don't get intimidated by a lot of things, and a lot of people. My dad, he went to Tijuana one time, and I don't know what happened, but he said he'd never go to Mexico again. I've driven to Cabo and and Rancho Leonero and East Cape. I've done that uh, close to thirty times, if not more. Well, I've done twenty five trips just to Rancho Leonero, so. Anyway, I've driven down there, and and the thing is, to you have to kind of know the rules a little bit, you know, and and you don't uh, you don't stick out and look like you've got a fifty thousand dollar camper and surfboards and kayaks and stuff on. I become like I tell people, be a blender, you know, and I've got an F three fifty with a Callan camper on it, and there's nothing on the outside of it. Everything's inside. Um, I I don't drive stupid we don't drive at night although i had a little mishap with that last trip um and <laughs> exactly uh, yeah just a little yeah. one <laughs> but uh but you know and i i'm not i i love it you know i tell people you get down below san Quentin and you cross the bridge and el rosario and that's a whole different country down there it really is um one of the things that um uh, that i i've always said don't drive at night and so my Spiro buddy lives across the street, decided, well, why don't we, let's go out, uh, get a little early start out of San Ignacio. So we stayed in San Ignacio and it, it was about 5.30 in the morning, just starting, not dark, but not light. And we're driving along, he's doing about 40 miles an hour because we're going to push it. And suddenly uh, he slams on the brakes and <laughs> there's a big, big brown cow. My big dog just came to visit us. I saw uh, yeah, and, uh, we, it's kind of like I've heard about cow tipping in the Midwest. We, we hit this cow at about two or three miles an hour. It bumped it and knocked it over a little bit. And when it got up, it gave us a big stink eye. It just walked away. However, it did about 500 bucks damage to the front of my truck. It broke off the left headlight and the, and the, yeah. and the uh, grill was shot and everything. So that was once again. So now, so now I, I you know, I, I, didn't pay attention to my own my own rules and paid paid the price. It could have been a lot worse. It wasn't. Uh, but uh, I have no no problem going down to Baja, diving along the way, uh, and driving. But if you've got any of your guys, that's Punta Chavado is one of my favorite places. L.A. Bay, which is close, in Yellowtail Heaven. There, you know, you've you've been. I'm sure you've made. How many trips have you made down to Baja? Probably a bunch, huh? Yeah. You know what's funny is uh, for like. 10, 15 years, I would go down there surfing all the time, yeah. and it was bringing a gun, um, just, to, you know, if the surf's flat, it's something to do, and then slowly over time, it was, leave the boards, let's go diving, this place is unreal, and I think the thing about Baja that's so amazing, it's a 1,600 miles of coastline, and the population there is like 3 million or something like that, and, and the majority of them live right at the border, Yeah. so... You talk about untouched. I mean, I'm sure, and maybe I could be dead wrong, and, and you would know more than I would, but I am positive there's got to be reefs there that someone has never even dove on or a fish has never seen a diver. There's got to be. And somewhere in there, there's a world record fish waiting for me. That's like my big <laughs> thing now, like, you know. Um, but uh, just in general, like, it's such a unique place to dive because I remember taking my buddies down there and diving um and on the Pacific side, and you see a, uh, you know, a parrotfish next to a pufferfish next to a calico, and then it's getting schooled up by a 20-pound yellowtail. And you're yeah. like, this whole thing is my, why are you here? 
and why are you here? You know, you look in a hole and look for a grouper and there's a puffer fish in there. And you're like, well, okay, you're here, but why is the calico here too? Like, you know, it's just a unique place. The, the first time I went to San Benitas Islands, that's exactly what happened to me. And I'm going, what's this? It's like a angelfish. What's this thing doing here? And, right. and I'm out in the water looking to shoot a yellowtail or something. And, you know, and there's calico bass and there's a black sea bass and here's a colorful little tropical thing. I know what the hell it was. And, and you know, an, an angelfish and little yellow and black one. And goes, you know, what's this all about? It's just that, that, that zone and that's, that, that it happens. And that's what makes it so much fun. And the Sea of Cortez side, um, there's still yellowtail there and there's tuna and all that, but it's a, that's a, a whole different, you know, uh, area of fish and, and, uh, you know, it just marine life and, and, and bottom and water and, and there's phytoplankton, you know, visibility. I've never really had as good a visibility on the sea Cortez side because it's all the plankton and, and everything yeah. else in the water. Uh, but it's, it's awfully, uh, it's, it's still very, very good place. For marine life and everything, although it's not as good as it used to be, it's a. There's been a lot of uh, you know international uh, boats over out there. Pressure. A lot of yeah, a lot of pressure on things. Yeah. And, but it's still good. It's still good. Um, L.A. Bay, like I said, is is only about ten hours south of San Diego. And if you want to just have a good fun time going to spear some fish, that's that's a easy destination. And uh, in the summer, the water's really warm. Around uh, September, October, uh, there's a bunch of whale sharks there, and right. and uh, in the in usually at the south end of the bay, they stay down deep um, for a while, stay in the cool water, then they come up as the water starts to cool off. But uh, that's a good one, Puna Shavado. I've been shot some nice grouper there. That's uh, oh boy, it's about 15 miles north of Mulahe, I think, and uh -huh. on dirt roads and all that, and. Uh, yeah. Let me caveat, let me caveat the Bay of LA thing. It's really dangerous and the road's terrible now and yeah. they'll shoot you as soon as you show up. So oh, don't really? go there. Oh, That's really? That's a joke. That's a joke. Oh. <laughs> 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 yeah, actually, it's funny. I've been wow. going here for so long that the kids, there's a guy that I would stay at a, the first time I went with my girlfriend and her friend. We camped on the beach at uh, the south, south part of the bay. Now that's all homes and it's closed off and you can't get there. But uh, unless by boat, unless you own property, um, I stayed at a place called Ruben Daggett, Daggett's Beach Camp. And when I first started going there, all they had were palapas and they had one boat and the boat launch was like uh, the worst Baja, you know, 1000 course you could ever go on. They had a old Ford pickup jacked up several feet. Rust, you know, I don't know, rust was holding it together. Uh, and that's how they would launch their pongo. Well, now they, they improved the boat launch. Uh, all of his little kids and the ones I used to bring ice cream to in my little propane freezer, uh, they're all now the boat captains there and they, they do a really, really good job. But, uh, it's, if you want to go shoot a yellowtail, that's a good spot to go. You know, oh, if you yeah. want to shoot something else, a grouper, that's a good place to go. If you want to see whale sharks, that's a good place to go. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> You mentioned running a cruise, so let's talk a little bit about like tips on boat handling, uh, rigging, or you know, uh, being a good boat deckhand, and being a boat good. Like, what is a good boat captain to you? A good boat captain to me is somebody that has worked his way from uh, worked all all positions on the boat and knows as much about the boat as possible, and and he gets respect. 
by his actions. Just because you're the boss doesn't mean you you earn respect. You don't deserve respect. You earn it. And I started out my career as a deckhand on the bottom stretcher at $10 a day. And that's a 24-hour day. And I was called, in, in the, on the hierarchy of a crew, there's the captain, there's the second ticket. Uh, if you're going to be out over 12 hours, then there's the cook. And then there's first deck, the main deckhand, and then there's second deckhand. Some boats, like some of the big, you know, uh, like the Spirit of Adventure, which uh, I ran as a dive boat, as a fishing boat, and they may have a crew of like eight guys. But essentially the same thing, just more of them. And so I learned, the first thing you learn as a deckhand, do what the captain says. That's the first thing you learn, okay? And the second thing you learn is how to tie a boat up and take a boat up, bring it into it, tie it to the dock and take it away from the dock. And then customer service is really important. Um, you know, you, you have to remember that people are there. It's like vacation time for them, whether they're fishing, diving, spear fishing, whatever. And, uh, and then the, the captain just sort of keep it all together. Keep it all together. Make sure everybody's having a good time. If somebody's having a bad day, maybe give them a little extra attention. Um, I can, I can name probably every a-hole passenger that I ever had to deal with, including one that I actually had to take a boat into town in Hawaii and put them off a boat. Um, uh, but the thousands of people that came on the boat and had a good time, I, you know, they, they just all, they sort of one and the same to me. Um, and I always used to tell my crews, service, not servitude. And, and as the captain, my, my core belief was to be polite, but firm. People expect, and the other side of it, you know, when you're, you know, we, we call ourselves skippers, we're the captains, but, but when you're the captain, you know, Everyone knows, okay, well, he's the captain, so he's the boss, you know, so, but, so my thing was always try to not let people be intimidated by the fact that I had a title that the Coast Guard gave me, you know, and that my, oh, know, yeah. you know what I mean? And I know so, exactly what you mean. I, so, yeah. so that's, to me, that's, that's what makes a good, a good captain. A good deckhand is somebody that pays attention. Uh, he sort of can anticipate you know, what, what needs to take place on the boat and he doesn't have to be told. It doesn't have to be constantly said, go do this, go do that. And, you know, whatever. Uh, they, they, they know what to do. And, and as far as the handling part of it, I always, uh, always made sure that, that the second ticket and the deckhands and even the cook had their opportunity to drive the boat, um, to anchor the boat. Well, the cook didn't anchor the boat, but the other guys did. Um, Pull up the anchors, and then uh, depending on where they were on in their journey to, uh, to uh, improve their skills, um, I would stand back and let them dock the boat. And right. uh, fortunately, the bottom stretcher had a real easy slip at Point Loma Sport Fishing Dock. It was at the very end, wide open over here, and all you had to do was, like I used to tell them, guys, what we're doing is a controlled crash. So we're going to come in. You're going to flip the boat around. If you're good, you can kind of just kind of slide it in yeah. like that and just put yeah. it right through the slip like this, you know. Um, if you're not really good, sometimes you kind of do this and back and forth and back it in and try not to wipe out that beautiful mahogany swim step that we had, you know. And we only, I think I only had one guy crunch that once and it was a sound I didn't like. But <laughs> I get the guys to do it all, you know. And because ultimately those guys were then going to become second tickets. And then captains themselves. So, well, yeah, and I've kind of found through my own um, uh, experience, unique experience working in teams and things like that, it, it, what you're saying is like 
if, if you develop people like staff development, if you let them be a part of something, they're going to have more of a vested interest in taking care of it, like period. And then the other thing, like you were talking about with the skipper um, being called skipper or captain, it's like, okay, okay. You know who's in charge the first thing something goes wrong? The person that knows the mo- most and the person that can stay is calm. And by definition, that should be the captain, you know? Right. So that inherent respect uh, should be there based on your actions. It's exactly what you're saying where it's like, it's not, um, it's not a, a given, it's an earned. Yeah. And if you have earned your way and you know everything, what's going on, you know the ins and outs of the boats, you know, you don't have to know how to fix the thing. You know, that's why you have engineers or something like that, but you have to understand how your boat, the, 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 what's normal for it, what's not normal, what it could be, and then turn the keys over and empower your crew to fix the thing that, you know, that's their job. So I, I, yeah, I totally see what you're saying. Um, and I want to go back to something too. You mentioned tying up the boat. That's, that's the funniest thing too, because there's so many times you, you roll up to the dock. And then everybody just stands there. You're like, okay, now it's time to tie the boat up. Like, come on, guys. Like, you yeah. Know. Um, so can you kind of go over? This sounds really basic, but I see this done over and over again. How to properly tie up a boat? Okay. Before I forget, the one thing yes. to, on respect, and then we'll move on to that, is that my crews all know I would never ask, and to this day, even in the television crews, I never ask anybody to do anything I wouldn't do myself. Right. And that's how you earn respect. So. That being said, okay, so as far as the having the boat, tying the boat up, some I've seen everything down at Dana Landing. and <laughs> People, like, they don't realize, you know, um, they're going to launch their boat, and if they don't have control of the boat, it's just going to drift away, you know. And then I've seen guys that one guy thinks he's going to launch the boat by himself and drag it with a line and go over to the dock. And no, no, that's not what happens. So you, you sort of, first off, understand what side of the boat you're going to tie up to the dock. All right. So, so if you've got your lines are over on the, the port side and you're anchor, you're going to dock them and tie it up on the on the starboard side. Maybe you better think. Ask you know if you're not, you're not sure which side you're going. I mean, the guy that's running the boat and say, okay, we're going to go. Unless of course our slip at Point Loma, which was always the same. But if we were going to Catalina or going somewhere else and had a tie up for the fuel dock, uh, the crew always knew have the lines ready, uh, have the fenders, not bumpers, have the fenders ready. And just anticipate what we're going to do. As I said earlier, we always called it a controlled crash. You know, when I, when I ran the Spirit in Hawaii, we used to go into Alaya Harbor, which has one of the fastest waves for surfing there is. And it goes right across the, the, the harbor. Right? Yeah, yeah. 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 And the, the prevailing wind comes off, uh, it comes out of the northeast. And so you're coming in. So the wind is coming like this at you. You're coming in like this. But the dock is over here. So, so you've got to, you come in like this and now you just get about 30 feet off the dock and get in front of it and let the wind kind of push you in. And like I said, it's a controlled crash, you know, and you just make sure that all you have to do is keep the boat parallel, you know, same thing. Uh-huh. If you're going to, if you're going to launch a boat around here and you've got a lot of wind, um, if you, you know, if you're not quite sure what you're going to do, then maybe get somebody, if you have, if somebody's on the dock, you can throw a line to, and you, you're not quite good with wind in your boat, maybe go in with a bow, throw a line, and then have them tie it, and then just kind of, you know, if they'll take another line, do that, or, or tie, tie up your 
a line from the bow or the spring line of side side cleat and use your engine just kind of turn you and put you into the dock. There's right. a, a lot of ways to do it. That's probably the easiest way to do it. You know, let your don't fight the boat. Let the boat work for you. You know, that's probably the best thing you can say. Don't don't you know? And also, don't panic if you're going to crash into something. Get yes. it all. You know. Yeah. No, don't try to overcompensate and get no. it more throttled and yep. smash. Just go neutral. Yeah, no, we talk about that all the time. Fortunately, yeah. our boats were mostly government uh, boats. We learned those things on, so no harm, no foul. But yeah, yeah just go slow. Yeah, we yeah. had the spirit in Honolulu Harbor to do an episode of Charlie's Angels, which dates me. If you ever want to see a fun episode and see a, a, my dive boat as a yacht for a gangster, it's the first episode of Charlie's Angels. It was a two-hour show with Cheryl Ladd, her first time on the show. That's and we, was, we, they, they, we took all the dive stuff off, and they had all the people on the boat. And while we were there, I had one of the local guy named Tom Clark, a, a sec, my sec, one of my second tickets. Um, you know, he wasn't as good as running boats. He wasn't used to a 90-foot boat. And so we're in Honolulu Harbor, and he's going to practice. And there's a barge docked, you know, tied up alongside the pier. And he's going to go from one side of the one pier to another pier. And in between was the uh, was the barge. And it was a very simple, just go right across and go like this and park it. He, he started, the wind started to get him. He started getting closer to the barge. And he, you know, here's three big <laughs> turbo diesel engines. He pins, pins it. And I, I and in, instead of just remaining calm and we could have, just bumped the barge. No, no, no. He had to take off a hell of a lot of paint and everything as he tried to gun it and get past it, which is bam, we ran into it. And uh, you know, I had the deckhands. Thank God they, you know, they, they. We all saw it was happening. All of a sudden, they, they got some fenders over there. It was over. Yeah. But still, still, you know. So my, my message to everyone: if you have a boat, don't get flustered. You know, there's a way to work your way out of it. If I was just out with a, a guy in a boat here not too long ago and. I've been with him on this boat three times. Two of the three times, he's put his boat in and slipped perfectly. This last time, he couldn't do it to save his ass. And it was just one of those things. So it happens. Say, yeah. Pete, just kind of, you know, here, we, we got you. We got you. you know? So we just let him do his thing. So well, I got to do it again. So fine. There was a little more wind. He had a little more wind. So that's, yeah. you know, if you can use the wind to your advantage, use it. If it's going to be a problem, then just, you know, take your time. Don't get flustered. Let the wind, you know, figure out what's going to happen and give it a shot. Give it a try. And then, uh, you know, have it, you know, fortunately or hopefully you've got somebody on board that can, you know, jump ashore or, or loop, loop a, your line around a cleat and, and, and you're home free. Right. So, um, no, that's, that's all good information. I'm sure we could talk. I have plenty of stories about that. I, um, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and some of them involved me too. I'm not going to lie. Uh, going from an outboard, driving outboard all weekend to do that checkout on a uh, jet drive, um, you know, one of the typical Navy SEAL boats you see. I was doing a checkout on that and I jumped on that boat and went to reverse it out of the slip. And the next thing I was going opposite of where <laughs> I wanted to go. It took about, it took about 30 seconds, but, uh, there was an oh shit factor because my <laughs> boss was sitting right there for about 35. What is this guy doing? Is he not a drive? You know? Um, but so as far as like your experience operating in bad weather and, um, you know, what would you say, like when you're, when you're dropping divers off, is there a particular like SLP for lack of a better term, uh, or a procedure that you 
kind of go through when you approach, like you say, the Benedictos Islands, um, when you approach those islands, um, how do you go, okay, I think we should dive here, or I think we should dive here. Is there a procedure you do for that, like in your mind? Yeah, it, 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 a lot of it is visual. It's just sort of looking to see, okay, what's the, is the water green over here? Like at Benitas, if it's, you know, uh, we, we dive on the, the, the way that Benitas is, is laid out, if you will. Uh, we try to stay on the lee side of an island if we can. Southern California, Baja, the prevailing wind is out of the northwest. So we try to hide behind whatever we can, an island or a point or whatever, so that we don't have the northwest swell or the, or the wind. Sometimes in the summer, however, you've got south swell. If you surf, everyone knows you get a south swell that comes up. The best thing for us when we go down there is have the northwest swell when we're leaving and a south swell develop and give us a free ride home. Right. So we're not, yeah. we're not punching through it. We're just, oh, it's, a, it's the best when that happens. <laughs> and it happens spring, for springtime, maybe like oh, late, late, yeah. early summer. Yeah. Summer. Yeah. So, so anyway, we look, I look around for first off skill level of the divers. Um, then secondly, um, uh, just water conditions. And I'm trying, my, my goal was always to find for the general divers, not the spear fishermen like Terry Moss and that group. They, they didn't care if they were getting the crap kicked out of them. They wanted to be, go where it's, where there's fish. But for the most, the typical passengers that I would deal with, it was try to make sure they were going to have a good time. It wasn't going to be overly challenging. Um, and if it was, then we'd have, you know, I'd either have a zodiac in the water. Or I would, uh, we always had a, a, probably a 200 foot current line out. So people could, if they surface, we tell them dive down the anchor chain. The dive site, everybody, is go down the anchor because the boat, the anchor's that way and the boat's back here. I anchored here because that's where I want you to go. And sometimes they wind up way over there and then we go get them. Um, but that's, that's pretty much it. Now, there's, there's a pinnacle, uh, off the West Benita side. Actually, there's two. Uh, and one of them is a really nice dive. It's a, it's a pretty easy dive. And so I'm anchored on the pinnacle. And one day, quick story, one day, um, there's a guy and his daughter and they were a little, not, not iffy divers, just a little, they were, you, you could, the ones that get off the boat last are usually the ones that are the ones that are probably the weakest divers. So, so we're telling them, um, they're, they're going to come up. And go up the anchor chain, go down the pinnacle, make a nice, beautiful dive, see some coral, see some nice fish and all that. And, uh, so we're watching them go up the, <laughs> up the, going up the starboard side of the boat. About that time, there's a hammerhead shark on the port side of the boat and they're gonna, they're gonna go like this. And I say, Oh crap. So I, I yelled at one of the deckhands and he grabbed a mop and I, I said, hit that, hit the shark. <laughs> I didn't want them to see it. And so, uh, he tripped the mop, bam, and the shark took off and went that way. And I never, never told anybody about, never told them, didn't tell anybody on the boat that we even did that. Yeah. You know? But, uh, that's, that's, you know, that's just one of those little occupational hazards that, you know, I didn't plan on that. It happened to me one more time in Hawaii at Galakakua Bay. People went on a night dive and, uh, I had the boat all set up and on a, on a mooring and we've got this nice, beautiful night dive, a newlywed couple. And, you know, night dives are more scary before you get in the water than once you're in the water for people. The apprehension and anxiety is extremely high. But once you're in the water, you're fine. That's and a great I, point. Yeah. I, I assured them there's no sharks. I've never seen a shark in here. You're going to be in eight <laughs> water. And sure as hell, 
Yep, that was the night there was a little little white tip was swimming around and they oh, they were okay. first they were really pissed off at me and thought that I stand I did that on purpose. It's honest to God. I said you're gonna have I, uh, everything that I can swear on and tell you the honest to God truth. I've never seen a shark here ever. So I would consider yourselves lucky. You know, yeah. I said little girl, and what's gonna hurt you? Well, it's funny because anybody that's you know spearfishes or even dives always gets that question. You've seen sharks, you know. And it doesn't matter if it's a leopard shark or a 20 foot great white, it's a shark. And like people just flip out. So like I get it a lot of times in the tropics where we spearfish, there's a lot of sharks swimming around and they'll like, you know, they get kind of crazy and go for the fish. And I always tell people, it's like, yeah, it's a shark and you could get bit just like any other animal around here. It really wants that fish, but like people don't care. They like, I mean, I remember at Marine Land when I was probably, I was think I was three years old, four years old. And, and this is in the eighties and this is kind of funny. Um, but I, you know, I always loved sharks and I watched all these shark movies and, and shark week. Probably I, I know about dangerous reef Australia from watching that growing yeah. up. Um, it's funny speaking to you it's about that. Hearing, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Port Lincoln, that whole area, I guess. Yep. Right. And, um, I remember like there was this big tank there that you could snorkel in and. I think they might have had um, leopard sharks there, but my brother is a couple years older than me, and um, he jumped in, you know, and swimming. He doesn't really give a shit. <laughs> and I jumped in. Me, I don't really remember how old I was. I might have been. It was before we moved, so I, I might have been four. Um, but it was like you know, waist deep. You could, you know, it was just a big yeah. aquarium, and I put my face in the water, and the first thing I saw was a leopard shark. And I like walked on water out of there. I was ter- I like it just shows you how much shit they put in your brain <laughs> about sharks. Like um, even as an adult, like I don't even watch Shark Week because I don't want that stuff in my mind. You know. Um, well, yeah, I, go ahead. Let me tell you, Shark Week used to be really good, and I'm not pimping it because I did a really good show for them with a buddy of mine, Marty Snyderman, called View from I, the Cage. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. White sharks and, and all that. But now it's, it's, you got these guys, our replacements in the, in the next generation of filmmakers, and it's all drama. It's all contrived. It's all pre-scripted for the most part. And I'm not going to name names, but you right. watch Shark Week and I just roll my eyes. But, uh, one, let me tell one, you can really drag these stories out of me. I thought you can't, ah, re- I don't think about my very first dive as an instructor i got my very first class and if you remember back to your first scuba class those of you that are certified you remember what happened you went down in the water you probably got down on your knees and you just got in a little semicircle. and the dive instructor your first thing you take your mask off or you flood it and then you take the regulator out of your mouth and you you blow and you put it back in and then he shakes your hand and you move to the next person all right so i've got the group where it's a casino area Cove at the Coronados because it's nice sandy bottom flat, and so I've got my group all lined up in my little semicircle, and I'm ready to start. And all of a sudden, it's like all the eyes just went, and I went, the whole bunch of them. They're like, holy, and I'm thinking, holy crap, what's behind me? You know, and I, I went, well, I better turn around and look. I turn around and look. It's still about a four foot leopard shark. And I went, yeah. <laughs> but as you said, it looks like a shark, you know. And shark, uh, yeah. I, I, I was like, "Oh my god!" I, I had a good laugh about it. I explained to everybody, "Okay, that's a good, that's a good shark," you know. But uh, anyway, yeah, that's my little leopard shark adventure. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's so funny. Uh, it, yeah, 
I mean, I, we've all been there. I guess we're all there at different stages in our lives. Like yeah. I was three or four years old and getting certified at 12 and going to Catalina and like, and doing that. And then, you know, the boogeyman kind of fades away. And then you meet the boogeyman one day and you're like, Oh, okay. yeah. Hey, he didn't eat me. Okay. Uh, yeah. no, uh, just, it's a learning process. I feel like with those guys, um, I have a professional relationship with sharks. You know, a lot of people like to eat, uh, uh, Mako or, or, uh, uh, Thresher or whatever. I, I have a professional courtesy as a dive instructor and a, a professional in the water that I don't eat them and they've left me alone. So that's my, Likewise. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just yeah. not me. My mom would say, can you bring home some shark meat? No, no. <laughs> go buy it's, it at Vons if you want it. I'm not, no way in hell I'm bringing yeah, it home. It's quite tasty, but, uh, yeah. I don't know. Like if you don't mess with me, I don't mess with you. Yeah. That, that's where I'm at with that. You know, um, it's just one of those things. I, as I would tell the students, you know, don't, I, we had part of the thing, you have to do a dangerous marine life lecture, sea urchins and sculpins and, you know, whatever. And I said, you know what the most, the last slide, kind of the joke slide, said, the mo- here's the most dangerous marine life you're going to see. And I have a picture of a diver. I said, and here's why. Because if your buddies, you know, you're in low visibility, the diver's the one who's going to kick your mask off. He's going to knock the regulator out of your mouth. He's going to, you know, spin something. You know it's happened. You know it's happened to you. It's, it's happened, happened to me in Hawaii, yeah. Yep. And I said, that's, I said, that's probably the biggest danger you're going to have, you know, is your dive buddy's going to do something stupid, you know. Um, on uh, running out from the boat operation side of things, I, I'm, oh, I'm embarrassed to even let anybody look at my feet because I've had so many weight belts dropped on my feet and my toes have been broken so many times. My, uh, I'll, here's a visual, and this is honest, yeah. My left big toenail looks like a Frito. And that's just from, <laughs> knows how many, how many, uh, I, I went to a podiatrist about two weeks ago. He just looked at it and said, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> he said, which time? You know, so, yeah. Anyway, so to me, the, the most dangerous thing that I've had to deal with in the water has been another diver. Yeah, the first time diving with my mom, actually, my mom and dad dove in the 70s, and my mom dove with me, and she jumped in the water in Catalina uh, on this pinnacle about, I guess it was like 90 feet, and she jumped in, and of course popped up like a cork because her weight belt just went down, just took off, you know, so I had to go dive down and get it. But uh, yeah, the, the old classic weight belt um, falling mm. off with, I mean, even uh, being a deckhound dive boats, it's comical. Oh. Yeah, it's like, how much money and gear are you guys losing? Like, uh, yeah. Well, um, Dan, I just want to thank you so much for, uh, taking the time to speak with us. I mean, I could literally talk to you for hours, I'm sure. <laughs> we'll go episode um, two and I'll tell you about the guy who shot himself with a spear gun. Hold that yes, time. I will. I'm going to write that down right now. That's yeah. perfect. Um, is, do you have any last, like any last recommendations or thoughts or anything you want to share with anybody? I would. And, and now remember, this is 2020 and I've been a scuba instructor since 1972. When I was 21 years old, I was captaining a 90 foot luxury dive boat when I was 25 years old is to pursue your dreams. But more importantly, with all that experience for all you Spiros, take a free diving course. If the best thing is if, if you haven't taken one, the stuff I learned even as a dive instructor, like for example, today I was on the, on the, the new Facebook page and somebody asked if it was okay to go free diving in scuba. He works in, in something as a diver and can he free dive the same day? And I said, no. Well, then Ted Hardy came on and explained why you don't do that. 
So I learned so much, and and I'm not I'm not so my ego is not such that I can't say that you know uh, that I know it all. I don't. Uh, I was probably the worst student in my free diving course because I knew too much about diet scuba diving and maybe making your your dive when you're gonna make a drop. Well, my drop was the crappiest one of the bunch. You yeah. know, I've been in the water my whole life. Um, and so my recommended my my parting shot would be if you've not taken the free diving course, take it. Your best thing is if the guy also teaches a spear fishing course, that's the guy you want to take your course from. Take your free right. diving spear fishing course because he'll know he'll understand the difference between someone who just wants to go out and see how deep they can go for how long versus someone that wants to go whack a fish yeah it's funny because it's like frenzel what's that i've been doing valsella my whole life me too i took a free diving class three years ago and uh, i was super embarrassed because the exact same reason yeah i'm like no i've been diving my whole life and my friends were like how do you know so much about all this stuff and i was like frenzel what's that i've always just been doing valsella i never have to dive deep where i'm at so i can just do that it's fine this is what i knew um and it changed the game completely like i knew all the buddy stuff and all of that from diving with the navy and all the other things but as far as just those little you know two percent of the things that were just game changing um and like you said yeah the worst thinner in the whole group uh you know but whatever i don't really give a shit uh yeah i'm not trying to impress anybody all these guys in the class they all had these really cool dive computers and i've got a classic doxa dive watch that i'm in the water with and what the hell i now have a very nice uh i think it's an f10 my my dive my free diving watch but i i was just you know god i was uh the worst you know but uh, like i said my ego was such i learned i bought the right new stuff i learned a lot you know so anyway that's it next time We'll continue this maybe another time when you when you run out of good guests. You can, <laughs> you know, I'll come back and tell more sea stories. Oh, it'd be great. No, it'd be great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thank you, guys. And hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. And we really appreciate you listening to uh, Spear Factor podcast. That concludes the show. I hope you guys enjoy it and tune in for the uh, next one. And if you'd like to support the show, uh, go over to spearfactor.com and check out our patron page. It'll take you over there and you can donate to help pay for editing and things like that. All right, guys, take it easy.
want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.